0: Before we look into God's word, let us speak with him one last time and ask for his assistance. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you for this account from the apostle John that he wrote down what he saw on that first day of the week so many years ago. We Pray that it may speak to us this morning, that he may continue to testify to us and be a bold witness and that we may indeed believe that your son is alive. He is not dead but he has risen from looking into your word this morning. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, When I was a teenager I always looked very young for my age. Some people would say I still look fairly young for my age. Some people don't seem to think that I am 29. I'm almost 30 so I'm looking forward to that day when I'm 30 and I can say I'm actually 30 when people ask, you look very young. But when I was a teenager I looked very young and so my uh, Jill saw photos of my sister's wedding and she looked at those and went, oh you must have been about 12, 13 and I was actually 17. And so it was a real difficulty for me that I looked so young when I got a little bit older and was eligible to go and see MA movies. I always liked the movies and I always liked violent movies as well. And so some of them were out of my league for a while, but once I turned 15 I was then eager to go along and see these uh, restricted movies, but I was actually eligible to see them now. But, so for a year there it was quite difficult to prove that I was actually 15 and old enough to get into the movie. So when I turned 16, I eagerly went and got my Ls the very first day, not so that I could uh, get my licence and so I could start driving. I didn't actually get my licence until I was 19 when I started to be more interested in the opposite sex and uh, wanted to start dating. But uh, I got my Ls and kept my Ls for a number of years purely so that I could prove my identity. I could prove how old I was so that I could get into those MA movies. We like to have proof for important things, like getting into the movies. But we also like to have proof for other things that you may rate as even more important than that, such as your bank balance. When you hand money over to the bank, you like some sort of proof that they are not just absorbing that money into the Commonwealth Bank infrastructure and that it's no longer yours, that it's some sort of contribution you're giving a gift to the bank. No, you want some proof that it is still yours. And same with insurance, you like a policy there so that in the future if something does go wrong, you've got proof that you had paid to have insurance and so that they need to pay up when something happens Where you're eligible now for insurance claim. We like to have proof for various things that are important. And so it is with Christianity and the resurrection. We like to have proof that what we're believing in is true. We like proof. And the resurrection is something that we need proof for. Christianity isn't some sort of airy-fairy thing that we just uh, believe in without any sort of grounds of proof. We build it upon the resurrection because if the resurrection didn't take place, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're basically, Paul the Apostle, says we're idiots. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that passage that Tina just read for us, If you've got a church pew Bible there, a black Bible, it's page 1139, 1139. Paul draws out the argument. So there's some people in the Corinthian church who are saying the resurrection isn't true. And so Paul says, okay, if the resurrection isn't true, what is the logical conclusion of that? And he draws out the argument. And so we see the first thing that he says is that our faith is futile, verse 17. So little number 17 1 Corinthians chapter 15, little number 17, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then you're still a sinner. Your sin hasn't been paid for. And then we see if, uh, if the dead aren't raised, that we then are to be pitied. Verse 19, the two verses down. It says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are to be pitied more than all men. If we only hope in Christ in this life and not the next life, then we are to be pitied. Because, of course, we're sitting here, we're giving up an hour of a public holiday here today to worship someone that has never been raised to life. And so we're to be pitied. We've just wasted an hour. And it's the same for Christians every week. Every Sunday they're wasting an hour if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And they're wasting their time that they spend in Bible study, they're wasting their time that they uh, spend in private devotions, they're wasting their time obeying all these laws that God has instituted and said you should be holy and follow these laws because it's just this life. There is no resurrection, there's nothing coming and so you're, he's saying you're to be pitied, you're, to, you're idiots. Why are you doing this? And he continues, the best uh, line that he has as he draws out this argument, he continues through the passage, but then over the page in verse uh, 32, he says what we should do if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. What does he say? He says in verse 32, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There you've got the Bible telling you, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, have a party. Pleasure yourself as much as possible. Eat and drink, for tomorrow you are worm food. Have as many drugs as you can. Do as much as you can to enjoy your life. Don't waste your time at church. Don't waste your time, um, your money giving to this church. We may as well, if Jesus hasn't been raised to life, we may as well sell this building, sell the property next door, sell Bowman Street property and let's all go have a party on the trustee's behalf. That's what Paul is saying. If Jesus hasn't been raised to life, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you are worm food. The resurrection is fundamental to Christianity. If the resurrection hasn't happened then we are all just wasting our time and the world can look on us and say, you idiots, and pity us. So it is important to look at whether there is proof for the resurrection. Can the resurrection be proved? And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at John's account, those nine verses in John chapter 20, and see whether there is proof there of the resurrection. So turn to page 1074 of those black church Bibles if you've got one of those and we'll be working through the passage, looking at the witness of John there and seeing whether the resurrection is true, whether it actually took place or whether we are just wasting our times and should be pitied by the world. So the first witness that we see is the witness of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, she's the first one. We see her in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, Early on the first day of the week while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary Magdalene is the first witness that Jesus has been raised to life. She's the first one there to see the tomb and that the stone has been moved and that Jesus isn't there anymore. But at first glance, she's actually a bit of a poor witness. We're looking at whether there are witnesses here, and she's a bit of a poor witness. Why is she such a poor witness? Well, the first reason she's a poor witness is because she's a woman. Being a woman at this time wasn't a great social status winner. You were low down on the scale. And uh, and so there's rabbinical sayings from uh, the Jews that say, let the words of the law be burned rather than delivered to women. They'd rather burn the Bible than let women deliver it. And the other way that we can see that women are low down on the social status scale, it says, blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. Having a child, that's a girl, wasn't seen to be a good thing. Women weren't high up on the social status scale. And then we actually see that within Jewish law, their testimony was actually inadmissible in court the testimony of a woman was thrown out altogether. She couldn't stand up and testify. And so we have the record from Josephus, an early church historian from this time, who writes, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. So women, you're too bold and you have too much levity, you're always giggling schoolgirls, and so you cannot give testimony in a court of law. That was what was accepted at the time. That women's testimony was not acceptable in a court of law. But here we have a woman as the first witness of the tomb. And not only that, she's actually had a bit of a history of mental illness or demon possession is what we would understand as Christians to be the case. In Luke chapter 8, verse 2, we read that Jesus had driven seven demons out of her. She had previously been demon possessed, not just with one demon, but with seven demons. Now you may not believe in demon possession, but you would acknowledge that probably what they understood at the time to be demons was some sort of mental illness. And so here, who's the first witness of the empty tomb? A woman, but not just a woman, a crazy woman. Someone who's had some sort of disturbances going on within her head, whether they're mental or whether they're a demon, uh, you can judge for that yourself. Uh, But here we have someone who has been disturbed in the past and then we see that her initial reaction to the empty tomb isn't that Jesus has been raised to life, it's that the body's been stolen. We see that when she comes running to the other disciples. Verse 2 of John chapter 20, verse 2, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, the Lord has risen. No, what does she say? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. She actually doubts the resurrection. She doesn't believe in the resurrection there at the beginning. She believes the body's been stolen. So she appears to be quite a poor witness. Not a very good testimony that the resurrection has taken place. But this actually makes her, when you think about it, a very good and reliable witness. Because what's the alternative to what we have here? That this isn't a historical record. Instead, the alternative is that this is some sort of religious propaganda that has been made up by some Christian nuts in the early first century and they've decided to lie about the resurrection. But when you think about this first witness, it so doesn't speak of any sort of lie going on because no one in their right mind would have concocted this story at this time. The testimony of a woman is inadmissible in Jewish law. You would never have lie, made the lie up that Jesus had been raised to life and the first witness was a woman. A lot of uh, scholars don't seem to uh, latch onto this as much as they should. It really is powerful witness to us that what we have here is a person who is concerned for historical truth and not for lies. It's not even some sort of religious legend because, and they've omitted the woman part of it. Maybe there was a woman there first but because of social embarrassment they would have left her out. But no, they've included her because that's what actually happened. Not because it's the best thing to convince people but we want the truth. We want a true historical record. And so they presented the record of that first day, warts and all, women and all. He's concerned for the truth, not for what is the most convincing piece of religious propaganda that he can push across. The second witness that we have is the witness of the uncertain disciples. The uncertain disciples. We see them introduced in verse 2 of John chapter 20. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So we've got Simon Peter there and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, is generally thought to be John the Apostle. So we've got two disciples there and what do they do when they hear this news? They say, oh no, 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 you've got it wrong, Mary. Jesus has been raised to life. We know what's going on. No, they don't know what's going on. What do they do? Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I'm not much into running. I'm not much into any sort of physical exercise. But I do run at times. I run when I don't know what's going on, when I'm uncertain, when it's an emergency, when I have to work out what needs to be done, when I need the news quickly. And what do we see here with these disciples? They're running. They don't know what's going on. And they don't know so much that one actually leaves the other behind and actually takes off. He outruns the other disciples. They don't run together. He may be a bit stronger and thinks, oh, I'll just run with him. No, they really are concerned to find out what's going on. They have no idea that this is the resurrection. They haven't connected the dots. They actually believe that what Mary had said must have taken place. They're out running to see what's up. And then when we see uh, this first disciple, the faster one, get to the tomb, what does he do? Does he go in and say, oh yes, resurrection, quite clearly? No. He gets to the tomb first at the end of verse 4 and then it says in verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. He's timid. He's scared. He doesn't know what's going on. He's a scaredy cat, a bit like me as well, that I I don't like uh, any sort of thing that might be too scary. I I like horror movies, but I like to be able to distance myself from the, the movie and I know that it's not me that's being affected. He's a bit of a scaredy cat. He hasn't connected the dots. He doesn't think that the resurrection is what's taken place. And so he's a bit of an uncertain disciple. And then we see that they don't understand, even in verse 9. It actually makes a comment. Does it present these disciples as knowing everything that's going on? No, what does it say in verse 9? They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They're floundering all over the place. They aren't connecting the dots. They are sceptical. They're uncertain of what has taken place. If this was a concocted story made up and not a historical account, you would present the disciples as bold characters who knew exactly what was going on and were clear about the resurrection and that that is what has taken place. But instead you have these uncertain people who are a bit scared, they're anxious, they're running around, they don't know what's taken place. And so, like Mary, they're actually good witnesses to us, that this is a historical record. They seem to be bad witnesses at first, but once you actually look at it, you see that the historian who wrote this is wanting to present the document warts and all. He's wanting truth and not lies, no matter how embarrassing the lies may be. Well, how embarrassing the truth may be. So he says there in verse 9, they didn't understand. That's a very embarrassing thing to say. But he goes and says it because that is what took place. At that point in time, they did not understand. So we've got another reliable witness there in the uncertain disciples. And then the final witness, my third witness, is the witness of the burial cloth. The witness of the burial cloth. They seem like an unusual thing to bring up, these burial cloths inside the tomb, and they get a lot of attention. We actually see them cross through three verses of the nine verses there. So we've got a third of the verses have mention of these burial cloths. We see them in verse 5. It says, He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Why does John spends so much time on these burial cloths. Well, they actually refute other explanations as to what happened in the tomb, that something else took place other than the resurrection. Because what's the first thing that people think of? Grave robbers. Grave robbers came in and took the tomb. If something's missing in my house, I don't think, oh, it's been resurrected somewhere. No, I think someone's pinched it, or that Jill has misplaced it somewhere. Not me, of course. No. Uh, So you think that someone's pinched it. But these burial cloths say otherwise. The presence of them says that it couldn't have been grave robbers for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the cloths would have been very valuable. And I've never been robbed, thankfully, but from what I can gather, robbers don't leave behind valuable items. They take the valuable stuff. They don't leave it behind. But here we have them leaving behind the grave clothes. We also see that they've taken them off despite the hard work that it would have been to do so. Robbers, I've never been robbed, but from what I gather, they work quickly. But these cloths would have been very difficult to take off. The body was wrapped up, but it wasn't just wrapped up with cloths. We read back in John chapter 19, a couple of verses earlier, verse 39, it says there that Nicodemus... Uh, comes uh, with uh, Joseph of Arimathea to wrap the body and it says Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds. Now if you follow the footnote down, that tells you how much it is in kilos for us who who like kilos rather than pounds. 34 kilos. So down in the margin, uh, there's a little letter C follows down to a number 39. In Greek, it's 100 litri, litri, which is about 34 kilos. That's an awful lot of ointment to be there. And so they, they were basically embalming this body. And apparently when that was between the cloth and the, and the skin, it used to stick like tar. It was like really solid glue. And so it would have been extremely difficult to remove those cloths in a haste, in a hurry as you would expect grave robbers to do. But here we see these cloths have been left behind. And not only have they been taken off by these alleged robbers, but they've been folded up. We see that with the the head covering in verse 7. It says in verse 7, the cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. These grave robbers that have come in, they've not only unwrapped the body and left behind these expensive cloths, they took the time to wrap them up and put them back neatly. Now I've never been robbed, but from what I understand, robbers aren't particularly neat fellows. They tend to make a bit of a mess while they're there. And some of them actually go out of their way to make a mess. My cousin got robbed while she was away for a a week visiting family and they found eggs in the fridge and so they took them out of the fridge and they tossed them all around and broke them everywhere and so she came home to this lovely egg mess all over the place that had been rotting on the walls for a few days. Robbers aren't tidy people. But what do we have going on in the tomb here? We have uh, a situation that is seen to be orderly that these robbers, if they did rob the tomb, have laid everything out neatly. They've rolled up that cloth neatly. And so these cloths actually uh, not just refute the idea that robbers came in and stole the body, they actually refute the idea that the disciples came and took the body. Because that's the rumour that was passed around at the time, was that the disciples came and took the body. But if disciples came into the tomb and took the body, would they have taken off the cloth and carried around Jesus' naked body. No, they loved the Lord Jesus. They would want to have wanted to have respected him. They wouldn't want to be carrying around this naked, bloody body from a cross. They would want to respect it and so they would have kept the cloths on. Plus they would have been in a hurry too, like most robbers, and they wouldn't have uh, taken the time to take the cloths off and they wouldn't have left them in a neat and orderly fashion. So these cloths are actually a very good witness to us that what took place in the tomb was extraordinary. It wasn't someone pinching the body, instead something else must have happened and that is the resurrection. And those cloths actually represent for John the Apostle his belief. We see that in verse 8. John stays outside but then Peter runs up, goes inside, and so then they, and he gets a bit more courage. And it says in verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw the cloth there. He saw the empty tomb. And that was enough for him to have faith. Yes, it says in verse 9 that he didn't understand how the scripture had predicted it all. And he didn't connect all the dots. But he had enough faith there to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead because of those cloths. Here we have proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is just nine verses. This is without all the other Gospels, without the appearances of Jesus, that Jesus actually came and met with people, up to 500 people at one time, the Apostle Paul tells us. Jesus actually appeared to people. He didn't just disappear and they concluded that the resurrection was what took place from the empty tomb and these cloths. No, they actually met Jesus, touched him, spoke with him, saw him eat. Jesus truly was raised from the dead and we can get it just even from nine verses, let alone all the rest. Here we have historical proof that the resurrection took place. Just as we like for proof for other things, such as our insurance policies, our bank balances, our ID to get into the movies, we like proof for the resurrection as well. People are often very quick to dismiss the Bible and say, oh, religious propaganda made up by people. But very few have actually read it for themselves. If you are sceptical about the Bible and what it says, read it for yourself. Get a copy. Read the Gospels. Read what it says about Jesus Christ. Read what it says about his death. Read what it says about his resurrection and look for lies. Be sceptical We're all sceptical at first. Even these disciples are sceptical. They aren't instant believers, they're sceptical. It's good to be sceptical. Look for lies in these Gospels. Ask yourself, is this historical truth or is it something made up? We all know what lies are. We are good at telling lies and we're good at recognising other people's lies. Look for lies in the Gospels and see whether it is the truth or see whether it is made up. It is historical truth. And read other books. There's there's very good books that you can read that are uh, are going to walk through the reliability of the Bible. We are blessed in the English language to have many books. Uh, i brought up one to recommend. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, uh, written in the 70s excellent little book. uh, It's very easy to read and it talks about the reliability of the Bible as a historical document. And so there's different tests that you do, uh, scientific tests that you do on historical documents. You look at the number of copies, that's sort of the external evidence and how, how it relates to other documents at the time. And then you look at the internal evidence, how it relates within itself. And so it goes through these scientific tests of what is reliability of the Bible and does it add up? Is it a historical record? And then he goes through other evidences. I've got a couple of those on the book table. If you would like one, you can take one. Uh, no, no charge at all. I'm very happy to give those away. Uh, they, that will take you through the historical reliability of the Bible. But read the Bible for yourself as well. We're all sceptics, but some of us are willing to follow the evidence where it leads us that's what we are as Christians. We look at the evidence and we take it to its logical conclusion. We look at the Bible and say, yes, this is true. There's no other explanation for the resurrection. It must be true. And that therefore means I need to follow Jesus as my saviour. Why don't people believe then if it's so true? If it's so clear that this is historically reliable? Well, it's the, the reason is, if it is true that Jesus has been raised to life, then there is a God. He is able to raise us to life and therefore we should be paying attention to him and how he wants us to behave. And we know that the God of Christianity cares very deeply about how we behave and wants to put constraints on our life, wants to tell us how to behave. And so people resist that. People don't like that. And so they look at this evidence and they say, yeah, I can't come up with any other reason. Atheists do that. They say, yeah, I I really don't know what happened that day. But they say, but I don't want to believe it. And the reason is because they may have to change their behaviour. Be a sceptic, but be a sceptic who's willing to follow the evidence where it leads you. Here we have in the Bible a resurrection, a way to eternal life, a way to cheat death. Death will no longer have a sting for you because just as Jesus has been raised to life, so you can be raised to life. That's what we hang our hopes on as Christians. Jesus has been raised, therefore if he says other people can be raised, he must be right, he must be true. And so we can trust in him and what he says so that we can have eternal life as well. Be sceptical, but be sceptics who are willing to follow the evidence no matter where it leads you. Look at it and then trust in Jesus and his resurrection because if he can be raised to life, so can you. If you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as the payment for your sins, then he says you can be raised just like me. So you don't have to suffer eternity in hell. You don't just go to the ground and a worm food for eternity. You can be with me in heaven. I am the firstborn from among the dead, he says, and you can be my brothers and sisters here in heaven with me if you trust and believe in me. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you raised Jesus to life and that means that you can raise us to life as well. You have power over death. No other God has that power. No other idol we can create has that power. You alone have that power and you have evidenced it in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your witnesses that you have placed on the earth so many years ago to write down historical records of what took place so that we too could believe that he has been raised to life and so that we too could have eternal life. We pray that we may meditate upon your word look into your word and ask the serious questions. Did the resurrection really take place? And we pray that you may enlighten our minds and give us the strength to follow the evidence no matter where it takes us, even if it makes us change our lives and our behaviour and acknowledge you as Lord instead of ourselves as Lord of our lives. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.